And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Is this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal, thy, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there are many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when he heard, they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I've begun to read this book, probably a book with the most ambitious title I've ever encountered. It's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wingrow, whom I will refer to as The Davids. It runs a little over 500 pages, followed by 100 pages of endnotes and 60 pages of bibliography. It may be the twilight of everything by the time I finish. But anyway, I don't know what you've been told about how human civilization came about. But the Davids say that by and large, there are two versions of that story. The first version traces back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Discourse on the Origin and Foundations of Inequality Among Mankind, published in 1754. Rousseau claimed that the earliest human beings wandered about in small bands, hunting and gathering with little need for much in the way of social organization or hierarchy. Each person was valued because each person's role was essential. They exist in a sort of state of innocence. Then we developed the capacity to grow crops. So we stopped wandering about, settled down. We were able to sustain larger populations. So small bands became large tribes and formed cities. Those who owned the land organized society to secure their power. And so instead of collaboration and equality, life was about competition and hierarchy. The other version of early history, still holding sway over the imaginations, comes from Thomas Hobbes. In this account, primitive humanity was savage, lord of the flies all over the place. Civilization didn't rob us of our innocence. It was the means of civilizing us. It keeps our animal impulses in check. And these are rather different stories. And the Davids argue that whether an author today tells some version of Rousseau or some version of Hobbes, 
It says more about the author's basic assumptions about human beings. If you believe Rousseau, it's because you believe human beings are essentially good and society messes them up. If you believe Hobbes, it's because you believe human beings are fundamentally bad and need to be reined in. Now, as most of you know, this church was once evangelical and reformed. And while its ethnic roots are German, its theological roots are Calvinist. Thomas Hobbes has been described as Calvin without God. So Calvin emphasizes the sovereignty of God, Hobbes the sovereignty of the state. What they have in common is their low view of humanity. That and the funniest comic strip of all time. So that is where that Calvin and Hobbes comes from. My former denomination's roots are uh, Dutch Calvinism. Uh, we sort of out Calvinized the, the, the evangelical reform. Like I went to Calvin College in high school. I attended the Young Calvinist Federation's annual convention. Uh, and our church, the equivalent to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, uh, well, the equivalent to Boy Scouts was the Calvinist cadets. And the equivalent to Girl Scouts was, wait for it, the Calvinettes. <laughs> Just to show you how deeply ingrained I was in my denomination, I did not realize how hilarious that was until I moved somewhere and said, oh yeah, we had Calvinettes, and I saw the look on people's face like, yeah, that's ridiculous. It sounds like Calvin's backup singers. Calvinettes. And as being, a, being raised in that tradition, of course, we were taught the doctrines of total depravity and original sin. What's interesting is about a year and a half ago, I had to take this psychological evaluation as part of my requirements for being ordained in the CRC, or the UCC. Uh, given how steeped in Calvinism my upbringing was, I think some of the results of that evaluation were kind of surprising. Uh, the, the evaluator sat me down and warned me that I am too trusting. I may even be a little naive when it comes to other people. I suppose Jesus, in our gospel reading, looks a bit Calvinist. Right? He's done some traveling about the region. He's created a good deal of buzz. Nazareth appears ready to welcome, home, welcome him home as some sort of hometown hero. And when he reads Isaiah, sits down and declares the prophecy fulfilled, they're like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, they're, they, they're about ready to give him a standing ovation. But Jesus appears to view all that as sort of like the operations of original sin, evidence of their totally depraved nature. It's like he says, don't kid yourself. You're not embracing me or my mission. This is about you. You're thinking you have some claim on me, that you have some sort of privileged status, that I'm your meal ticket. Sorry, I'm not playing that game. And not surprisingly, his old friends and neighbors take offense. Now this assessment, going back to that, I mean, what it consisted of is hundreds, felt like hundreds, hundreds of statements where, uh, covering all sorts of matters. 
And then you, know, you read it and you have to fill a bubble in to indicate whether I strongly agreed with it, agreed with it, disagreed, or strongly disagreed. So there might be a statement like this. People will take advantage of you when they know they won't be found out. Now, I don't think I'm naive. My experience has been that assuming the best of people brings out the best in people. Assuming the worst of people brings out the worst. Have I ever been wrong about that? Plenty. And that can be really rotten. But for me, do you know what feels worse? feels worse if I assume the worst of someone and I'm wrong then. So you pick your poison. Which one you gonna, you know, which sort of disappointment do you want to have to live with? I don't know that it's accurate to say that Jesus assumes the worst of these Nazarenes. Um, Jesus doesn't do much in the way of assuming. He doesn't operate on hunches. He just knows, right? Uh, he, he demonstrates a pretty clear-eyed view of things. He sees them as they are. But he does illustrate my point. See the worst in folks? Tend to, out, tend to bring out their worst. Because they, hear, they decide they have heard enough from Joseph's kid. In fact, they feel so deeply betrayed, they don't just show him the door, they show him the cliff. Now, if our gospel reading feels rather Calvinist, even Hobbesian, our epistle speaks to the Rousseau in us. It's among the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. People who have no interest in the church, no interest in the Bible, they still want these verses included in their, on their wedding day, on a day they expect to celebrate on an annual basis for the rest of their lives, a big day. They want to hear these words. Well, why is that? Because on some level, no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you sense that Paul is getting at the heart of things here. The greatest of these is love. Loving. Being loved. Nothing else compares. So that says something about us too, right? This near universal understanding that all you need is love. Uh, I mean, doesn't that suggest that on the whole, we are essentially good? Now, these Davids that write this book, after summarizing these two narratives about the origins of human civilization, introduce some of the findings that anthropologists and archaeologists have made in recent decades. And what all this research reveals is... Hobbes is wrong. Rousseau is wrong. The truth is far more complex. The research shows what the Davids call a carnival parade of political forms. There is no single narrative describing the evolution of civilization. The story varies from region to region in all kinds of ways. I feel similarly about the question of whether people are essentially good or bad. Neither answer is sufficient. The truth is far more complex. 
years ago, after my daughter Arden was born, we noticed changes in Allison, our, her older sister. She became a little more spiteful at times. For example, one day she stepped on Arden's head and then giggled. I recall one day being left in the car with the two girls while their mom ran inside the store for to make a quick purchase. I don't recall what triggered it, but Allison was not having it. So I'm sitting in the front seat, looking at her in the rearview mirror, flailing and crying and yelling. And it tapped into my Calvinism. Here it was on display. This impulse to think ourselves the center of the universe, to refuse to see anything beyond our self-interests. Total depravity. These thoughts did not make her behavior any less annoying. On the contrary, I found myself getting more annoyed. I turned and with a stern voice said, Allison, that's enough. She disagreed. The situation most definitely called for more. Hobbes might argue here that uh, this is where punishment is called for. It is my job to establish that not only will this freak out not fix anything, it will make matters worse. So get a spanking or lose a toy or a privilege. She needs to be civilized. But then I had another thought. Maybe this kid freaking out in my rear view mirror is a kid desperate to love and be loved, who can only imagine getting the love she wants by being the center of the universe. What I'm witnessing here is a kid refusing to come to terms with the fact that the universe won't play along. What I'm seeing is a kid who's just at a loss, expressing frustration, threatening punishment. They may get Allison to pipe down, but uh, that would leave those underlying issues unresolved or worse. I might be sending the message that, in fact, she is unlovable. Well, I felt my frustration drain away at that point. I said, it is really hard when you want mommy and she's not here, isn't it? And that was just the right question. In fact, it was so good. Not only did Allison's behavior change forever, it changed her one-year-old sister, who didn't even understand words. No, no, that's not true. The point is that labeling human beings as essentially good or essentially bad is not particularly helpful. Either conclusion oversimplifies the reality. The truth is, that were complicated. Learning to love and be loved is this ongoing process. In our epistle reading, Paul writes, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. To assume that one is only going to receive the love they need by being the center of the universe. That is one of those childish ways we've got to put aside. We have, it's something we have to move beyond. 
But just because we do that does not mean we get it all figured out. I mean, Paul presents learning to love and be loved as a lifelong process and then some. In this life, we will always see through a dim mirror. We will only know in part. Now, Jesus is not dealing with a bunch of narcissists who think Nazareth is the center of the universe, but they are people looking through a dim mirror. In that dim mirror, like I said, they're figuring their hometown uh, connection to Jesus raises all their property value, gives them special access to divine blessing. And Jesus dismantles that assumption. It's not going to work that way. Robbing someone of their sense of security tends to not bring out their best. It tends to rile up their, their lizard brains. In our gospel reading, it's an angry mob of lizards threaten to toss Jesus off a cliff. Threaten our sense of security, will you? Well, we'll threaten yours. Now, you would think that this might activate Jesus' lizard brain. That he would survive by going into flight mode, faking left, breaking a tackle, and beating them in a foot race. Or by going into fight mode, sending them all flying with some roundhouse kicks. Or by fawning, you know, apologizing and taking it all back. He responds like someone who knows there's nothing that can dismantle his sense of security, who knows, who knows love fully and eternally, no matter the circumstances. He has what we all want, what we come out of the womb crying for and spend our lives determined to find. You know, at some point in my previous denomination, I was like in the 90s, they did some rebranding. So the Young Calvinist Federation became Youth Unlimited. Calvinettes became Gems. Neither name drew inspiration from the doctrines of total depravity or original sin, which from a marketing standpoint is probably for the best. But there is some comfort to be had in those doctrines, especially when we take seriously our quest to love and be loved because it is not easy. Patience, kindness, not boasting or insisting on our own way, not keeping a record of wrong. I want to keep records of wrongs. I want them on a spreadsheet where I can score and rank them and if needed, sort them alphabetically. There is so much in me that seems determined to keep me from the very thing I so desperately want. I find it surprising. But God never does. As Paul says, I am fully known. That Nazarene mob was fully known. Even if they didn't know they had it in them to want to push Joseph's boy off a cliff. Peter was fully known even if he didn't know he had it in him to deny Jesus three times. Those who mocked Jesus as he hung in agony were fully known, even if they didn't know what they were doing.
yet they were all loved. We are all loved. Knowing this, even if we only know it in a dim mirror, can help settle down our lizard brains. When our insecurities and fears and shame and regrets form a mob and threaten to push us toward a cliff, we can walk right through their midst, knowing that we are loved fully and eternally. In the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, Amen.